Short Fuse podcast, conversations around the visual arts, music, dance, literature, theater, and film. Short Fuse is produced by the Arts Fuse, the online journal that brings you commentary and criticism. We engage, we explore, we ask questions. Welcome. The exhibition, Grief and Grievance, Art and Mourning in America, curated by the late Oquian Weezer, opened at the New Museum on the Bowery in Manhattan in February this year, and will be on view through June 6th. As I sat in the gallery off the museum's lobby and watched the Garrett Bradley video projected against the wall, I felt the presence of Marcia Tucker and the presence of James Baldwin. I met Marcia, the founder of the New Museum, in 1983, when the museum was in the New School building on Fifth Avenue. This exhibition suits her. Her interest and passion were for those artists who, through their lives and art, were exploring social issues and raising philosophical, moral, and ontological questions rather than aesthetic ones. I thought of Baldwin and if Beale Street could talk because Bradley's video is about a young woman who is marrying someone who is incarcerated. Beale Street has a similar theme, and in both Garrett's video and Baldwin's short novel, we are left wondering what will unfold, but seemingly feeling that love and hope will prevail, finding, to borrow Kevin Young's word, the elsewhere. A powerful moment, an interesting entry point to this exhibition that affects the museum guests, both physically and emotionally. I am Elizabeth Howard, in conversation with Massimiliano Gioni, the Edlis Neeson Artistic Director at the New Museum, and one of the curatorial advisors for Grief and Grievance. Massimiliano was a colleague and friend of Okwis, the Nigerian writer, critic, editor, and one of the most important curators of the past century. It was Okwi who conceived Grief and Grievance. Massimiliano provides insight into Okwi's vision for the exhibition. The show was conceived by Okwi Einwezor and uh, uh, that, you know, in spite of his loss, we were uh, somewhat lucky to be left with uh, the gift of this exhibition and, and uh, the process of uh, bringing it to life uh, with a assistance of this group of extraordinary advisors being Glenn Ligon, Mark Nash and Naomi Beckwith paradoxically enriched the whole experience and I, I don't know if it's fair to say that it enriched also the complexity of the exhibition itself because I'm sure that Rocky Enwetzor would have uh, probably made it different uh, and, and I would expect him in a sense to make it better but I think this kind of polyphonic conversation with Glenn Ligon and Mark Nash and Naomi Beckwith certainly made the show, uh, the show's texture richer and, uh, and I think also maybe more emotional because we were left with dealing with a show that Okwien was already initiated, with a, a series of dialogues that he had initiated, but we found ourselves sort of stepping into those dialogues and having to, to uh, amplify them with the absence of Okwi in the background that they kind of charge all those dialogues with, uh, if possible, even more emotion. What you say about Marsha, you know, I met Marsha Tucker socially a couple of times, but I never really had a dialogue with her. But what you said about her belief in art as a lens through which to understand the world and in a way to understand the world beyond the museum, 
is something I strongly believe in and, and share in. And uh, I think this show and hopefully many other shows at the New Museum and this testimony of this belief that we have in art as a tool to understand the world beyond the walls of the museum and art as a, as a lens to look at the world. And I think this is certainly the case of this show. Um, this show was special also in the way that it was initiated in 2018. So at the time, Okwi Enwetzor was in Munich. He was living the Haus der Kunst. And he and I were in dialogue frequently because he was contributing to two books uh, of the new museum, the Nari Ward Retrospective Catalog and the John Aconfra Retrospective Catalog. And, and so in the course of the conversations around those two artists, he told me about this series of lectures he was preparing for... Harvard, uh, called Grief and Grievance, Heart and Mourning in America, lectures that unfortunately he was never able to give because sadly couldn't travel back to the United States after 2018. And so he told me about this series of lectures and I say to him, why don't you make it into a show? And he took on the invitation with great enthusiasm and he started working on the show. The fact that he was in Europe, the fact that he was already sick and under treatment uh, requested a different type of support on the part of the museum in the sense that we were acting more as a researchers and making materials available to him and we had more of a conversation which retrospectively really helped also us when we we, we started executing the show after his passing in in March 2019 but I'm, I'm saying all this because the show began in 18 we wanted it to open in uh, fall of 2019 before the elections because he saw the show as an indictment or a confrontation with white nationalism as uh, was condoned and promoted by Trump. What Okwi didn't see and what we ourselves couldn't foresee was also events of the summer of 2020 which follow the killing of George Floyd. The show was actually finished by the advisors, so by Glenn Ligon, Mark Nash, Naomi Beckwith, and myself, we sent the book to print on May 1st, and uh, George Floyd was killed in on May 25th. So we finished the show after the pandemic. We, we had a few months in which already mourning was becoming something else for America and also for the African-American community, which was hit disproportionately by the pandemic. We sent the book to print. The, the show was almost done. And then the killing of George Floyd initiated a whole process of uh, uh, reckoning and thinking and confronting a history of uh, violence against uh, African-American communities in America. And, and so we found also ourselves asking, should the, the show change? Should the book change? And we had many conversations with the artists. We decided not to. And then uh, finally the exhibition could open in February this year, so with a delay of six months. And um, we were confronted with the question, should have we change the exhibition to somehow incorporate the, the dialogues that follow George Floyd's killing. And, and once the show opened, as you described, you know, watching the Garrett Bradley, mm -hmm. I think we realized that the fact that the show had been completed before, in a sense, gives it a gravitas uh, and an emotional charge that feels less occasional and, in a sense, deeper. Mm -hmm. I think he underscores the fact that, obviously, all these problems 
were not news, sadly, that they were somewhat endemic to, to American history and American culture. Uh, and I think he also removed the show from being a chronicle of current events and, and being somewhat of a deeper reflection on uh, topics that obviously we hope are not bound to remain the same. Now, one thing is to say we realized those questions were endemic and anybody who, with a little bit of brain <laughs> would have known that before George right, Floyd. Right, right, right. But we also realized that we could confront them on a deeper rather than occasional level. And sorry, this is a very long digression that I think helps also understanding what, what I believe you were seeing when confronted with that video in that specific moment of, uh, you know, February or March 2021 in New York City. Do you, do you think since he was facing his own mortality while he was working on this, that it, that some of this is memoir. I mean, do you see a, a lot of uh, how how did he think about this? These are very, in a sense, very personal and complicated questions that, on many levels, I resisted to address out of you know also respect. But obviously, for anybody who knew who Oakley was, and for anybody who knew that he was battling cancer, um, you know, the inception of the show was summer. 2018, he started producing more materials around the show really between the fall of uh, 2018 and the beginning of 2019. And, you know, he passed away on March 15, 2019. And I remember, and I think about it literally almost every day, you know, we spoke the last time on March 1st and mm. he was working and making plans. And I knew he was at the hospital, but he never signaled on one hand, he never signaled that anything was going to change. On the other, you know, he told me in January that he wanted Glenn Ligon to be an advisor on this show. And he didn't need to say, we all understood that that choice was also a way to give a continuity to the show uh, should have been impossible for Oakley to complete it. And then when... After Oakley's passing, a few months later, we started talking to artists, to friends, to to his family, his partner. And, you know, we all, I understood he had set in motion a, a series of um, conditions so that the show could be completed. He had spoken to artists, he had uh, spoken to friends, he had left a lot of materials and, you know, he had told me how he wanted the show installed and so on. To answer your question more specifically, in our conversations, he never made reference to his own mortality. Mm -hmm. But the show, paradoxically, was born um, in the wake of a conversation we had for the catalog of our Nari World exhibition, which was a kind of intellectual autobiography. It's a conversation in which he talks about coming to America as a 18-year-old, and and he talks about his experience as a black man in America and the difference of his perception because he was Nigerian and, you know, his ideas of um, identity and blackness that were confronted with different ideas in America. And um, so I sense that, yes, the show had a lot to do also with what he was going through. And uh, and in that sense, I think the most remarkable aspect as you go through the show was how he tried to combine, obviously, a, a sense of somberness that is very present in the show with also 
outbursts of life, uh, um, mm-hmm. you know, the use of sound, the use of performance. Right. I think he was clearly contrasting thoughts about mortality, his own mortality, and obviously also the sense of mortality or mourning that black communities in America had been confronted with uh, disproportionately for centuries. And, and you know, I think, um, and, and that is very difficult to translate, if you will, in an interview or even in the images of the show, what makes the show somewhat exceptional is this constant push and pull between images of somberness, images of darkness, not in the sense of blackness, but, you know, the, the kind of black veil, which is a recurring theme in the show, from Nari Ward Carr to LaRue Johnson to Sable Smith or, or Kerry James Marshall, uh, and then these uh, outbursts of sound and life, uh, which obviously are also inspired by, you know, the tradition of jazz and blues as sublimation of, let's say, black sadness or black trauma, but that that I think also had to do on a personal level, whether or not I'm even authorized to to speak about this, but had to do with Oakley also uh, going through his life in that moment of his own personal biography. Yeah, and you include part of that interview with Nardi in your essay in the catalog. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, and Songs of Mourning, Songs of Resistance, about when he talks about being, I think it was in 1982, when he talks about the danger of being a black man in New York. It's a very yeah. powerful image of what he felt. And he described, I thought I would read his description of grief and grievance as the crystallization of black grief in the face of a politically orchestrated white grievance represents the fulcrum of this exhibition. Uh, The exhibition is devoted to examining modes of representation in different mediums where artists have addressed the concept of mourning, commemoration, and loss as a direct response to the national emergency of black grief. And I I really like that phrase of, you know, the national emergency of black grief because, as you said, that was written before George Floyd. Yeah. (laughs) Before things really even accelerated a little bit more. In in your essay, and it is, uh, I think, for those people who are listening who cannot get to New York to see this exhibition, the catalog is really something that everyone should read. And I understand with most of his exhibitions, he would have these very intellectually rigorous catalogs that included different scholars from many fields and disciplines. And that's what we have here. So in your essay, you talk about there's a constant negotiation between heterotopia and proximity and between centers and peripheries. And I wondered if you could expand on that. Well, I think in my essay, I mean, first of all, you, you are right to, to mention the catalog because it's... Uh, Beautiful. I can say it's an exceptional book because, you know, it's very much Oakley's book, so I, I'm not self complimenting <laughs> And uh, I think it stands as testimony of um, Oakley's uh, reach and influence, you know, the fact that we could literally call up Judy Butler and get a new essay mm. uh, had to just simply to do with Oakley's, both is the respect that he commanded in different fields and also the network of his relationships to be said about, you know, the involvement of Sadia Hartman or Juliet Hooker or Claudia Rankin and Christina Sharp, Coates and Elizabeth Alexander. You know, it's really a stellar catalog because of Oakley's ability to bring these talents together. So as far as my essay is concerned, and I 
to talk about myself after these great authors is somewhat embarrassing. But no. I think I was I was concerned with two points. On one hand, you know, Oqui is understood as the the curator of of the expansion of the Western American and European canon, and also is understood as a curator that brought politics into the mainstream of contemporary art. My point in in my essay was also to remember that, yes, there was plenty of, let's say, politics and ethics in his work, but since the very beginning, Oqui had been a formalist, and I say this somewhat polemically, and I was also joking on other occasions that, you know, if uh, you have met or seen Oqui, you know, he was... uh, only somebody who dressed like him could be a formalist and yet an ethically driven curator fascinated by by questions of globalization and the expansion of the canon. But, you know, for, an, for a curator who's so much associated with, let's say, the political expansion and even the geographical expansion of the canon, Oqui was always interested in art, the way in which art almost physically and emotionally had an impact on you. His exhibitions were always somewhat theatrically choreographed. If any of you have been to his 2002 documenta, you remember that, you know, the Fredericianum opened with the readings of Onkawara's One Million Years, which offer a kind of, dare I say, even melodramatic soundtrack to to a show that was about history. And then in, in his Venice Biennale, the central room was devoted to, yes, a reading of Karl Marx Capital, but the reading was frequently interrupted to have songs and songs that were songs of workers and also songs of personal experiences. So, you know, there was always an element of music and sound and, if you will, theatrical even uh, impresario ability in his work that I think made his shows much bigger than the immediate uh, reception of his work as a political curator was. And, and so I think that was important to, to underscore, and it was something that I think he was very aware of. I think as you go through the show, as I mentioned earlier, the presence of sound and music is incredible and and that was an evolution from his Venice Biennale but it was also something he experimented with in a show that he presented in Munich about the jazz label called ECM in which he basically exhibited music and that was something I think he was getting more and more interested in and that it's visible in in the show so you know this idea also when I interviewed him about the Venice Biennale the first thing he told me you know he said it's an exhibition about voice and music I think everybody retrospectively think it's the exhibition about you know Karl Marx capital but he I remember we titled that interview workers play time which is incidentally also a, a record by Billy Bragg because what struck me was actually how much he was speaking about music, about the voice, he was speaking about songs. So for, uh, you know, as much as people identify him as the political curator, I think of him also as an incredibly poetic uh, curator, and, and, and that was, you know, one of the points in my essays. And the second is um, the way in which he troubled descriptions and decisions uh, about, yes, what is central, what is peripheral. I think, uh, you know, Oakway on many levels is one of the most interesting interpreters of globalization as globalization was configured in the 90s and the beginning of this century. I think, and I draw a parallel between his work and the work of the artist Thomas Hirschhorn, who 
most famously presented his Bataille monument in uh, Orquist Documenta in 2002. And, you know, not coincidentally, coincidentally, he had chosen Bataille as a kind of hero figure because he was a philosopher who troubled also assumptions about, um, again, hierarchies, about the center, about the periphery. You know, I think, again, Oki's ideas about the center and the periphery are, are much more complex than a kind of Manichaean distinction. And, and I think that made his work very powerful because... Uh, he didn't actually abide to those assumptions around what is the center and what is the peripheral. And, uh, and he troubled those distinctions and imagine a, a different landscape, which in a sense I find reproduced in, in the work of Thomas Hirschhorn in his ideas of a kind of precarious monuments, which I think is another topic of this show, maybe less uh, apparent, but, uh, you know, the monument, the memorial is another question that recurs throughout uh, Grief and Grievance. When I was reading the catalog, I went back to the uh, 1995 catalog for the Africa Art Show that was at the Royal Academy. You know, it was the first time that African art had been displayed like this. One of the points in the essays in that catalog is that people always, Westerners, had a tendency to look at Africa as just one continent, <laughs> not looking at the vast culturally, ethnically, religious diversity. And I was thinking of those layers as we were looking at time and ceremony and monuments. It kind of, you know, it was, it was interesting to go back to that. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's interesting to, to think that Oakley's first show in New York is in 1996 at the Guggenheim is a survey of... African contemporary photography, mm. and uh, his essay, which is co-read Octavio Zaya, who was the co-curator of the show, it's a brilliant essay, by the way, and it's an essay that particularly looks at the way in which photography becomes a tool to construct certain stereotypes of identity, certain stereotypes of race, uh, you know, the invention of... Um, photography goes in hand in hand with the invention of the identity card and with the positivist myths of identity and, and stereotype that, you know, resulted in, in the most cruel constructions of race that, that dominated the 20th century. And in that essay, Okwe thinks about that, thinks about how photography is complicit with certain constructions of African identity. And also he looks at Africa from the prism of contemporary photography as a tool to remove also all those stereotypes and to look at Africa as a, a continent of present in a dialogue of contemporary culture, you know, not, not a, a kind of mythical land of origins and not a, a place of, again, of myths, but more a, a living a uh, place where people are from, where they take photographs, where they right. they are confronted with exactly the same questions that fellow artists in Europe or America are uh, are confronted with. And I think that was, you know, a very important contribution that Oki brought to the Western, let's say, understanding of Africa, that no longer the myth or the counterfoil or the, the projection, the mirror onto which uh, uh, Europe and America projected 
with their desires and fears, but actually a place of contemporary thinking and contemporary culture. And I think, you know, the work that he does with the short century was very much in that sense and, and many of his other exhibitions. But he's also interested in his first biennial is symptomatically in uh, Johannesburg in, uh, I believe, 1997. Uh, and it's a biennial in which uh, the kind of distant question he's asking or his rebuttal is... Uh, to Ajuchen de la Terre, which was the 1989 show at the Pompidou, which had presented, again, contemporary African artists through the prism of this myth of origin or this kind of shamanistic view. And uh, instead, Okwi, in his Johannesburg Biennale, is very clear in presenting African contemporary art on an even field with many other artists from all over the world and as contemporary Expression I don't like cultural producers, no, mm -hmm. and um, rather than kind of mythical creatures of a, a remote um, land of the imagination. You mentioned sound and performance, and I feel that actually the the exhibition kind of wraps around you. You know, you're it, you, you're immediately aware of that that you're not just standing staring at a work of art, but but you can't. You're, it's it's there, and and it is poetry, and it's it's around you. So there are 37 artists in the exhibition. Um, many are well known: Kara Walker, James Carey Marshall, Basque, and there's others that people wouldn't be quite as familiar with. So we certainly can't talk about all of their work, but there are a few pieces that I wondered if, if you could just reflect on a little bit. The Theaster Gates video of the Roman Catholic Church of St. Lawrence in the south side of Chicago being destroyed, I found that a very moving, because it is a requiem with the, with the music. Yeah, well, it's a piece that, that Oki included in his 2015 Venice Biennale, and this, I think, is also interesting for for people to know how we went about finishing the project. You know, in, in many cases, we had chosen specific artworks, and whenever he had done that, uh, we went after those specific works. In some cases, he had been in conversation with the artist and hadn't gotten to settle on a specific piece or had not spoken to the artist, and so we were not left with a directive about which piece to pick. And in those cases, we discussed with artists and we we spoke with them and uh, in some cases decided to include works uh, that uh, we had uh, included in previous exhibitions. And in this case, uh, with the Astergate's work, uh, we had um, that was the work that was on Onquis list. But it's also interesting how the inclusion of certain works also points to a kind of uh, curatorial uh, history of Oqui. You know, the same is true for Ellen Gallagher's works. Those are the same that were included in, in the 2015 Venice Biennale, or some of the same. In, in Gaines' cases, this, uh, in, uh, sorry, Tiaster Gates' case, the work is, uh, yes, this kind of requiem for a building. And uh, the building is a church that is about to be demolished, a church that Tiaster Gates had uh, tried or had dreamt of preserving uh, as part of uh, this work of preservation that he's doing in, um, in Chicago. Uh, but it was also too vast of a project for him to take on. And so uh, he decided to, to celebrate this performance, which is a um, yes, a kind of requiem for the church in which the church itself is used as a, almost as a musical instrument. And uh, mm -hmm. 
So in the course of the performance, uh, the rubbles or pieces of furniture or doors are played, so to speak, while uh, music is played and, and songs are chanted in, um, in the space. And, uh, and this presence of sound, as you mentioned, kind of floats from a room to another. And, and I think he adds a layer, a, a sense of presence to many other works that, that because deal with mortality, because they're dealing with mortality, in the absence of the sound would have become much more inert in a sense or much mm. more mm. self-enclosed in a sense. And, and mm. I think the sound kind of uh, gives this life to, to, to the entire exhibition. And, uh, you know, Oakley obviously didn't know about the pandemic and, uh, and in a sense there would have been maybe more of a performative element, you know, the, the work of uh, Oakley, Okpoafsali uh, would have probably had more recurring performances and then uh, she had to develop more of a sculptural piece, which is beautiful and that's also interesting. It is beautiful. I was, I think that's an important piece. We do have a performance element in the work of Rashid Johnson where uh, once a week uh, Antoine Baldwin, who is the musician after which that piece is named, comes and plays live, but had not been uh, set up in the middle of a pandemic, maybe there would have been also more performative elements. And uh, and yet I think the sound is a distinguished... Everybody who's also familiar with Oku's recent shows has pointed to the sound as uh, one of the, the most uh, interesting development in his uh, recent curatorial practice. But then, you know, as I was researching my essay, I, I remember the first show I saw by Oku was called Mirror's Edge. And by a strange turn of fate, that show opened in Italy, I believe, in 1998, uh, or, or anyway, came to Italy after uh, being in, um, in Sweden. And that show opened with a soundscape and also opened with a work by Arthur Jaffa, who at the time was just moving his first steps in the world of art, because until then he had been making work more in the world of cinema, most famously with uh, being the cinematographer of uh, the, the legendary film uh, Daughters of the Dust. I also thought the, the Rashid Johnston installation, people aren't seeing visuals, sort of shelves and books and live green plants and organ music, that, and, but there's decomposition, but it's intertwined with the living. And yeah. so it's, it's as if the, the living and these plants are there to somehow absorb the pain. It's a different, you know, the, the green and the light uh, gives a very different sense to that particular room and that installation. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, that, that installation was very much conceived by Oakley in the sense he, he knew that Rashid Johnson was going to be there, if anything, because of the scale and size he can only fit in our very theatrical fourth floor. He knew that Mark Bradford and Julie Moreto would be in dialogue with that. But also, as you say, the most remarkable aspect of that work is this uh, kind of perennial uh, dialogue between beginning and endings in in the sense of you mm, know the life yes. of the plants uh, which you know you're contemplating and you know their life is passing but then the presence of the plant is so vibrant um, rashid has told me that that people who love plants react so emotionally to that piece and uh, there is almost a you know the plant is immediate life in a sense and uh, and there is something that 
Uh, I'm not a plain person, you know. I, <laughs> I I'm incapable of sustaining <laughs> lives of plants. Uh, but, uh, but I see what Rashid means when he says, you know, people who love plants, when they get there, they get so personally invested and emotional because the plant is this sort of, you know, uh, and I don't want to sound banal, but this kind of archetype of life. And, uh, you know, we feel immediately protective and attached to it. We, we start asking questions, how is it surviving in there? And, uh, you know, it becomes also a reflection on life, which obviously in the context of a show about grief is, is such a fundamental question, on, you know, where and who defines a life uh, that is worth mourning, you know, that is uh, what Judy Butler has written in in a book that had very much influence, Okui, the, the little book called Precarious Life, which actually predates the conversations around Black Lives Matter. It's a book that she writes or they write following September 11 in the aftermath in which, you know, conversations around quote-unquote American lives that have been cut short in the attack on the, the um, Twin Towers, uh, those lives are somewhat way against or not way against the lives that will be lost in the invasion of uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and, uh, and you know, the, the, all those sentiments about which lives are uh, deemed uh, grievable and, and uh, which lives deserve mourning. And, uh, and Okwe, I know that, you know, when he thought of inviting... Judy Butler to contribute to the book was very much because he, he was very interested in, in precarious life and in that book. And in a sense, what precarious life is also asking is, you know, what makes a life worth mourning? And, you know, the plants in Rashid's work are, in a sense, asking us that question, you know, what defines life? And uh, and, and so, in a sense, they, 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 they kind of raise that primordial question, what, what defines a life that should be mourned? And, you know, at the cost now of sending a little banal or sentimental, you know, what, where do you draw also the, the limits of life? And I think all those questions are raised by that piece in a very physical sense you know i don't think the um, i don't think even the, the emotional response necessarily register that that's i think what that piece asks about but but i think the more i spend time in it uh, the, the more i also understand that that is what uh, maybe is the crucial question of that piece and indirectly of the show too and then time i thought time and history is so deftly felt in daywood bear's uh, black and white portraits which are the the diptychs with an image of a child photographed at the same time when four young black girls were murdered in the 1963 church bombing in birmingham juxtaposed with a portrait of someone the age they would be today um, and they gaze at us so directly forcing us to look into their eyes, time has collapsed. And I, and I found, you know, time is so present through so much of the exhibition. You mentioned the, the incredible cycle of photographs by Dao Bay, which um, Naomi Beckwith writes brilliantly about in, in her uh, essay in the book, and particularly about how that piece makes visible all the ramifications of... Uh, Loss, no. It's one of these pieces that makes immediately visible what could have happened if the person's life mm. had not been taken. Mm-hmm. I see that piece, uh, and I, in a sense, I return to what I was saying earlier about Okwi's career in parallel with the work of uh, 
of Thomas Hirschhorn. You know, I see those base piece as a kind of memorial of sorts. Uh, and I think that can be said also about uh, Nari Ward's work, about maybe also Rashid Johnson's piece and, and many other works in, in the exhibition. But in Dao Bay's work, you have a, a sort of monument, which though is spoiled of monumentality understood as kind of empty rhetoric, no? And, uh, and it's a monument, uh, again, to use the expression that, that Thomas Hirschhorn has used, it's a kind of precarious monument or a, a monument that, that is much more significant because it puts you in direct presence, again, of all those ramifications of lives interrupted and other lives that, that instead were uh, allowed to continue. And... Um, it does so with an economy of means that is uh, incredibly powerful uh, and that I think is also much more contemporary, if you will, than uh, the, the kind of rhetoric of marbles and pedestals to which monuments have, uh, have familiarized us with. And I think throughout the show, again, the, the work of Nari Ward is another example and many others, you have this uh, kind of question of, you know, what is a monument today and, uh, and what you know, even, or think of Hank Willis Thomas and other pieces in the show, they, they're asking the, the, the same question. And are there ways to make monuments that are more contemporary, less pompous, and in a sense, more effective? And that was also a question I was asking myself, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, which is was when we were finishing the book, uh, you know, there were a lot of discussions around the fact that there are no monuments to the, to, the, to the 1918 Spanish flu and, you know, how mysterious is that, that people just wanted to move on. And then uh, little we knew that a few months later, in the f wake of the killing of George Floyd, we would also start thinking of monuments from the Confederate monuments to the kind of street side memorials that too often are the only monuments for uh, police violence. Uh, and, uh, and so all that conversation also became much more charged, I think, in the last few months. But again, Okui had sort of pointed at it in, in the exhibition itself. James Baldwin wrote an essay entitled The Creative Process. It was published in 1962. And he wrote, we have an opportunity which no other nation has of moving beyond the old world concepts of race and class and caste and create finally what we must have had in mind when we first began speaking of the new world. But the price for this is a long look backwards once we came and an unflinching assessment of the record, which I think is something that through this, through the exhibition, you're helping us look back, look at time, look at what then. And, you know, white people are moved, but do we understand and can we ever understand? That is a, a very important question. It's a question I, I don't even know if I'm equipped to answer, in a sense, because what is also, what is implying is that there is a reaction to the show that is... Uh, you know, a white person's reaction or a black person's reaction. And, you know, I have to say also, we was always uh, very careful not to confirm sort of essentialist uh, readings of uh, uh, people's mind. And uh, interesting enough, and, and this is also something I never, unfortunately, discussed with Okwi, is the fact that this is the only show in his career 
uh, that only focus on black artists. Um, and uh, why it is so, um, you know, I can have my explanations or my interpretations, but I think it's remarkable that, you know, it's his last show in America. It's his show in New York after nearly 10 years since he had had a show in New York. I think he says a lot about, you know, the state of uh, things in America that he felt it was important to do this show this way now. In terms of, you know, your original question, I think... Uh, there are many moments of catharsis in the show. The question, though, is uh, for me even, am I entitled to that catharsis? And is there catharsis without self-exoneration? And I think that is very important. And I think that's where I find myself thinking about the show. You know, Arthur Jaffa, has quote of his, has become uh, somewhat famous that he says, after he starts showing Love is the Message, which is in the exhibition, Plenty of white people would go up to him and say, oh, it's so powerful, it made me cry. And, and he started getting a bit suspicious of that. You know, the, the and, and that's why also we have this piece by Tiona McLaughlin almost at the beginning of the show, which is called The Full Severity of Compassion. You know, the question of is there catharsis, is there compassion that is not immediately self-exonerating, I think is a crucial, um, not even immediately, that it's not self-exonerating, a very important question. Well, it, it seems to me that grief and grievance is a sublime, intelligent, quiet disruption. And, you know, not the loud, violent, and angry disruption of, say, January 6th that is inciting us to respond to the national emergency of black grief, which is what um, Claudine Rankin mentioned in her, in her essay. So as a last thought, perhaps you can tell us about a Glenn Leiden's words that are mounted on the exterior wall of the new museum, what we see when we enter, and then we turn around and take in again as we leave in a state of mourning. Yeah, so Glenn Ligon's piece, which is called A Small Band, uh, is installed on the facade of uh, the new museum. It's a large uh, neon sculpture which uh, recites three words, which are blues, blood, bruise. And uh, the words blink uh, during the day. It's hard to see the blinking, but they, they do so throughout the day. They blink somewhat musically or intermittently. And uh, it's a piece that on many levels serves as a kind of um, subtitle to the show, I believe. It was a piece that Okwi very much wanted. It was a piece that he had commissioned for his Venice Biennale in 2015. So it was the piece that served as an overture to his Venice Biennale. When you go and see his uh, Venice Biennale in 2015 on the central, on the facade of the central pavilion, you would encounter this uh, kind of three words poem that, that Glenn Ligon had uh, created, especially for that occasion. And, and that Glenn Ligon and also the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts so generously let us present on this iteration. It's a piece that obviously also in 2021 in an American city uh, takes on so many layers of, uh, uh, of knowledge because, you know, not only in America, but across the world, uh, as we all know, 2020 was a year of blues and uh, bruises and uh, blood um, and even more so, again, for the African-American communities that are uh, hit uh, twice as hard as uh, 
other communities by by the pandemic and then compounded with uh, uh, you know the, the history and recurring history of violence um, against uh, uh, black communities in America which had its uh, sort of most brutal manifestation in, in, in the killing of uh, George Floyd. The, the three words poem uh, is uh, a kind of distillation of a, an event that occurred in New York City in 1964 when a young teenager was arrested by the police, was beaten by the police, and uh, in an attempt to be taken to the hospital, he said that he had to press uh, the blood, press the blues to show them police the blood uh, so that they would believe him that he needed medical attention. But in, for a, a, a Freudian sleep, instead of saying blood, he says, I had to squeeze the bruise to let the blues out. And in that slip of the tongue, Glenn Ligon and uh, uh, saw a, a, you know, evidence of that kind of profound collision of violence and and sublimation of violence that is found in blues music and in jazz and uh, and so in, in the kind of overlap of those terms he found an immediate evocation of a history of violence and attempts to raise above that violence through art if you will and through uh, a history of resistance within black culture and uh, and so the piece stands there as a yes as a kind of uh, subtitle to the show or as a kind of alternative title to the show and of course as i said earlier in in this moment in america he he gets uh, uh, stratified with so many other possible readings which uh, is also the reason why we we presented it in new york we presented on the exterior because he, he, he speaks of a moment in history that there has been uh, uh, very difficult on many levels. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through the short fuse podcast at gmail.com. You can support us through Patreon. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.